0: One of the key engines for the future of the space economy will be government investments. That's what I think. In terms of very large space infrastructure, in particular for the moon exploration, there's going to be a lot of support from government to do this.
1: Hey, Space World Trust, this is Space Economy Insights with Kevin O'Connell and Dr. Emma Gatti. We would like to welcome you to this pilot episode of our podcast series on the insights of this exploring sector, that is space economy. Kevin and Emma will deliver in-depth conversations with guests from the most diverse and exciting fields of the space economy domain to understand where this is all going. This podcast series would not be possible without the support of our sponsors Private here is creating the data infrastructure that will enable sustainable growth for the new space economy. Check them out at mission.privateer.com. The support of our sponsors does not have an influence on our editorial autonomy and our editorial direction. I'm Torsten Kriening, producer of the podcast and publisher of spacewatch.global. And now, lean back and enjoy the show. Emma, over to you.
2: Hello everyone, this is Emma, the Editor-in-Chief of Spacewatch Global, and the co-host together with Kevin of Space Economy Insights. Welcome to our first pilot episode. Today, Kevin will kick off with an exclusive interview to Claire Jolly, and right after that, Kevin and I will discuss the meaning of the interview, its main points, and of course, I will ask Kevin his opinion about what Claire says, so let's hope there's going to be some disagreement. Kevin, over to you.
3: Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin O'Connell, and I'd especially like to welcome today Claire Jolly, who's the head of the Space Economy and Ocean Economy Unit within the Direct grid for Science, Technology and Innovation within the OECD. Claire, thanks for agreeing to be our first guest here on the Space Economy Insights podcast.
0: Dear Kevin and Emma, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you, especially as the space economy is getting a lot of attention. We just published a few months ago our second edition of the Handbook on Measuring the Space Economy, and we're seeing this topic resonates around the world.
3: Excellent. And you know my excitement and optimism for the space economy as well. Let me ask you, as we get started, would you give our listeners a little bit of background on how you got involved in space activities?
0: It really started from studies that I conducted early on. I have both a background as an economist, as an engineer, and I joined actually the OECD more than 15 years ago for a one-year ad hoc project looking at the potential of space applications to make a difference in government affairs. And well, the OECD kept looking at the space sector ever since. So we are seeing this indeed as a key sector for the future.
3: It's very much the economics of space, I think, is an understudied topic. And the excitement is in the technology and the excitement is in the mission areas. But I think we have to pay very careful attention to the economics, both at the macroeconomic level, but also for individual firms. And it sounds like you've been on that quest now for many years, even though you only started with a single project. Again, delighted to have you here. So I think it's appropriate for us to start this podcast series, Claire, with the the mega question. What is the space economy? I've always been partial to the OECD definition of the space economy, but how do we define it?
0: So we started with quite a broad definition back in the first handbook on measuring the space economy, because there's actually, and we see this increasing demand for data, for statistics on the space sector. I mean, it's not new, but let me just remind you that government still are the main investors in space. They're investors, they're developers, owners, operators, regulators, and customers of many of the space products and services. And that's been the situation for almost 50 years. We are going to talk about the commercial sector in a few minutes. But really, the important factor here is that we have taxpayer money going into space programs. And what we've seen in the past 20 years is that we've come from 40 countries all the way to now almost 90 countries with satellites in orbit, meaning there's a lot of public money going into space, meaning there's a lot of demand to actually provide evidence on why you need to actually Invest in space. And that's why we were approached by quite a number of countries over the years. And we came up indeed with this definition with them and with a number of industry players working with us, industry associations in terms of trying to get a better grasp of what was meant by the space economy. So the definition that we use as a starting point again is quite broad. We said that the space economy is the full range of activities and the use of resources that create and provide value and benefits to human beings in the course of exploring, understanding, managing, and utilizing space. So it seems like a very beautiful (laughs) definition, but then you need to obviously adapt it slightly to actually provide some statistics on the space sector.
3: So I think you made a couple of excellent points. First of all, we know that governments continue to spend at a record rate themselves. I believe the number last year was close to $100 billion dollars. Of investment, that number is growing, partly because of security interests in space, but also because of a passionate interest in leveraging space for things on the ground, but also trying to do better at scientific exploration and understanding developments in the universe. So, I think it's an appropriately broad definition. When you mention the discussion about governments, I like to think about taxpayer accountability, and I think that's really one one aspect of what you're saying. I like to tell a story. I told it on the last. Uh, podcast that I did here in, in which I was meeting with a senior European economy minister a couple of years ago when I was a commerce and he smiled at me and said Kevin I'm really excited about space as well but what's the ROI return on investment for my investment and you know it's really important that we understand that politicians who otherwise have lots of other things they need to invest in have to have a clear understanding and an economic understanding of why they're investing in space
0: and I think you made here totally the good point about the need to measure things. We need to be able to actually monitor the actual investments, and that's not always easy. There are a lot of budgets that we cannot account for, very often because they are linked indeed to defence, and they are not always publicly available. But we can actually get an idea, a good order of magnitude of the investments. And here, indeed, space budgets are really at their highest since the Apollo era. But... As an interesting item here is that still the majority of space budgets constitute less than 0.05% of GDP in most space countries. The largest budgets are in the U.S. with only 0.2% of GDP. So it's still very tiny in the economy, but with very important impacts. Many are tangible and many more are intangible.
3: So Clara, are we accounting properly? We focused on how we capture industrial economic activity on the ground. In the United States, we have NAICS codes. You have industrial codes in Europe. Some would argue that we need a whole new set of industrial codes for space activities. And then we have this new role and we're going to turn the corner toward the private sector here. So are we doing a good enough job at this? So can we do better? Tell me what your thoughts are on that.
0: So you're right. At these points, we do have some major measurement challenges. They remain typically in the existing statistical classification systems. We do not have definitions for space activity in isolation, except for a few, what we call the IC code on satellite communications. There are a number of useful codes, but in terms of indeed having specific categories for space, we do not have that many. Our view based really on this large consultation that we conducted as part of the handbook is that so far we don't think we should change all the classification code. Actually, right now at international level and national levels, we're going through an entire revision process of all the major statistical classifications. At this point, space might actually be too diffused, but I don't think that would be the good solution. Now, in terms, another challenge, obviously, is that a lot of the assessments, the economic assessments, are reliant on case studies, expert opinion, right. and many studies with different methodologies. So this makes very difficult to actually not only compare with other studies, but also test them for validity. Very often, you don't have a robust counterfactual saying, well, space is going to go this way. Market studies are really sometimes putting a bit of hype on some potential markets, obviously. So for us, one really good way forward is really to produce at national and industry level robust surveys. And on, based on the data of these surveys, you can conduct impact studies that are likely to remain really, for the time being, the most effective approach for analyzing the space economy for most countries at a, the first step. In the U.S. right now, there's a large U.S. industrial deep dive survey that's being right. conducted by your colleagues in the Department of Commerce with NASA and quite a few others. And we do believe, indeed, these type of surveys provide a lot of granular data that are going to be useful. One way to remedy some of the limitations that I mentioned so far is to actually make sure that you also take into account the data that you have internally. Typically for governments, there's a lot of data on actually use the suppliers, the tax declarations of a number of companies. There are a lot of administrative data that can be used to actually track better, not only public investments, but also the actual activities of the private sector.
3: I suspect the data is available, but it's all over the place. And so the challenge is as much bringing it all together. Absolutely. The data is there. It's not everything we need, but I think the data is actually there and welcome the efforts of people, again, my former colleagues at commerce and obviously yours in Europe to look at how to capture at least this part of the data and then know what other data you need to go out and collect, which is very important as well.
0: Because you mentioned the role of the private sector and this role is growing at an incredible pace. Governments in particular, and I mentioned they're key investors, but they're doing a lot of outsourcing. And at the end of the day, many of the companies that have been around for many years are seeing new competitors coming in with new business models. And themselves, they have private investors that they need to respond to in terms of their activities.
3: I think one of the differences between the governments and the private sector investment is that in the private sector, They seek differentiation between business models. So if a private investor says to me, hey, Kevin, what kind of a company are you going to build? And I say to them, I'm going to build a company that's just like Claire's company. The investor is going to say, why would I invest in that? And so in many ways, the role of private finance is actually encouraging an acceleration and innovation because it's seeking differentiation across many different market segments. And so I think that's one of the most exciting parts of this that we can look at. I'm also taken by your comment on what I'll call the NAICS codes, again, industrialization codes for capturing economic activity. It's legitimately a question to say, is manufacturing on the moon manufacturing, and should we just capture it like manufacturing, or do we need a unique code? And I think that's an interesting space. sounds like you're shying away from that kind of an approach.
0: Kevin, yeah, I have to say here, I would have to be super pragmatic. Any activity, any commercial activity, any government activity that will take place on the moon we'll have to actually refer to statistics here back on Earth because many of the activities that will take place will have actually started here. So indeed, when you look at the main segments of the space economy, typically upstream and downstream, where we see that upstream is really the scientific technological foundations of space program in terms of science, R&D, manufacturing, launch, this segment, you know, it's relatively easy to measure with official and industry statistics, a lot of the moon activities will actually use some of these upstream uh, segment foundations. In terms of the downstream, that's where it's getting more difficult. In terms of the space infrastructure operations, down to earth or moon products and services that do re- directly rely on satellite data signals to operate at function, some of these activities are still pretty easy to measure in terms of telecommunications in many cases. We've official industry statistics, but obviously as soon as we go into geospatial data, then that's getting trickier for the moon again, there will be a lot of definitions that will be used again here back on earth to actually at least categorize in the next uh, couple of decades, I would say.
3: Well so I think in some ways to summarize this discussion about measurement, I think on the one hand it's the inputs that we can be confident about measuring in many ways. so we can measure launches, we can measure satellites, we can measure Although even some of those input as well, geospatial data is a little bit more amorphous. I think what's harder to measure is what comes out at the other end, improve scientific knowledge, economic productivity. And I know for a number of countries that I have spoken to, it's really all about economics. It's about driving economic growth. It's about driving talent. It's about driving innovation. Those are harder to measure. I'll share my bias here, and I think you probably know it. I worry that we're undercounting the space economy. We see the roughly half trillion dollar estimates of the global space economy. I think those numbers are small, even though there's differences between, say, the Euro consult number and the Space Foundation number. I still think there's a lot of activities that we're not yet capturing. And so understanding what we're going to count and how we're going to count it. I think there's still some work to be done there.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you, Kevin. And that's why we have these third categories. We have the upstream, the downstream. And for us, we have what we call the derived or induced from space activities, but are not totally dependent on space. But still, that includes, for instance, technology transfers from the space sector to different sectors of the economy, like the automotive of medical sectors. We can actually track many different, I would say, impacts better and We need to actually take them into account simply because they actually give us a better understanding of the pervasiveness of a growing number of space activities in the broader activity. So they should be taken into account. And that goes obviously beyond official statistics.
3: Absolutely. So it seems clear as if the space economy has been relatively resilient through at least 2021, if we accept the numbers for what was very strong growth in 2021. But we're now also aware that the private investment levels dropped precipitously in 2022. Government spending still remains high. How do you think about the macroeconomic situation and how the space industry and space economy will respond to that or engage in it?
0: Yeah, Kevin, you're absolutely correct. It was quite incredible that during the COVID, the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, so over two years and a half, almost three years, most of the OECD economies actually continued to increase investments in R&D, despite the sharp decline in economic activity in general. That was the first time on record in which a global recession did not translate into a drop in R&D expenditure. And that was very much true for space. So it actually came out a surprise for quite a number of economists afterwards, but obviously the situation has really changed dramatically. The world is coping with a massive energy price shock, inflation, and it's not going to go away. So we are seeing already the impacts in the space sector, in other high technology sectors. Let's not forget right. that the ICT sector is hit very hard right now. So it's not just the space sector. Over the next, I would say, three to four years, we don't see the public investments in space actually drop. At least in most countries, it's it's long-term investments. And as you mentioned earlier, the importance of looking forward and thinking of security implications, actually, au contraire, it tends to boost even more investments these days, particularly with the war of aggression against Ukraine from Russia.
3: Absolutely. Right
0: now, what we're seeing in public research organizations is maybe limiting the scope in some key programs. We have some issues here we see with Earth observation in particular in a number of countries. A need to actually commercialize further, outsource even more, hence opportunities for the private industry, that's for sure. In terms of the business research and innovation sector, really, firms, here there's a bit of a question. We're seeing the start of a new phase going beyond the new space hype. That's where, I guess, some of the winners and losers are really going to appear. And we're seeing this also in the stock market, where, again, in some segments, particularly small launchers, there's going to be some, again, winners and losers, that's for sure, with a number of competing models of resilience. Some are actually looking at open innovation, technological autonomy, in terms of what they're doing. Some are actually trying to put together entire supply chains. So a lot of measure and acquisition will come in the space sector. I'm sure over the next few
3: years. I think one of the things that's most interesting, we'll see some consolidation. You've mentioned the remote sensing sector, the launch sector, communication sector may have their own versions of consolidation. I think ultimately the market will be stronger and the companies that are in that market will be stronger because of that. It's a necessary step on the path to the trillion dollar space economy. I think the difference is that now. Consolidation will take place on a market basis, not on a government recovery basis. I think that'll also be a strong aspect.
0: Yeah, Kevin. Here, maybe I'm not in a total agreement. I think here, we're going to see the return of government big time. We're talking here about providing more outsourcing to the private sector. That's true for the U.S., obviously. Everybody's trying to follow this model. This is very true for Europe. We're seeing this in Asia now, with India, for instance, really now pushing for a commercialization strategy way more than ever before. This is true for China. This is true around the world. But again, one of the key engine for the future of the space economy will be government investments. That's what I think. In terms of very large space infrastructure, in particular for the moon exploration, there's going to be a lot of support from government to do this. Now, over the next decade, so many things could change. Some of the products that are coming on the horizon using artificial intelligence are just incredible. Some of the innovation coming in the energy system is also quite incredible. Grids providing communication links. That's going to be new competition, actually. Absolutely. So, see, we really need to think of the counterfactuals. The space economy is doing well, will grow further. But I think we need to take into account many other aspects to avoid some of the hype. And this is something that we have to talk again and again to our delegates, particularly in, in the OECD, in terms of making sure that we are not overselling space or any other sector, actually.
3: Are you seeing as much interest in measuring the economy as on the part of all delegates as you have seen in some of your earlier work?
0: Yes, absolutely. There's a strong demand, particularly from the private sector. Again, because this, this sense that some papers that have been produced over the past few years have been very much hyping the space economy so much that now they have to face the harsh realities of facing investors who are not convinced anymore.
3: Right. And certainly the investment situation has changed and they're going to be as much a user of this better economic data as anyone else will be. And so it's important that we keep this up. Let me shift gears a little bit and say one of the things that I like about the space economy is it's quite diverse in terms of the new market segments that we're seeing. We're going to focus this podcast in particular on some of the newer segments like energy, like food and space, like space medicine, things like that, while also looking at the trends in the traditional markets, quotes around traditional because they're also changing at lightning speed. When you mention artificial intelligence and machine learning or even geospatial data, sometimes I think there's a false impression that we're fully leveraging those new technologies in the space business. I think we've just begun. I don't think we're anywhere near full recognition of the benefits of those technologies in the space sector. Are there any of these new market segments that you're following with a particular interest?
0: Yes, I would say all of them, but there's one that I think is very important for the future, for the sustainability of the space sector in itself, for the future space activities. And I think that's a topic that's of keen interest to you too, it's space sustainability and space debris. We need to deal with the problem. And here, there are actually market opportunities. Mainly, again, a lot of outsourcing that will probably come out of governments, but We see two large markets that will definitely grow in terms of space situational awareness. We need to know more. We need to know what's up there. And obviously, at some point, we will need to clean up some of the orbits. All this, of course, is... The the cause of all this is, of course, uh, the, the proliferation of space debris. We are basically paying the price for the past 50 years of space activities. A lot of the debris that are up there are the results of past missions with large bits and very small bits that are up there. And governments and the private sector are looking for information.
3: You know me well enough to know that I won't argue one iota with that, but I think the important transition, and you've mentioned it, Claire, is that we now need to think about this as as an economic issue. I know you had a session in Montreal a couple of years ago which looked at the economics of space debris, and... I consider this to be foundational to the future of the space economy. What we know is that space debris today threatens the lives of astronauts aboard the International Space Station. As we speak, two cosmonauts and one astronaut are waiting to come home because the capsule that was designed to bring them home can't bring them home. And so that should be another red flag for us. But it also threatens the billions of dollars of investment that we've made in the space economy in space. And it really threatens the future of the space economy in every way. So I think you're right. I think we need to think about this as a business as much as anything else. We have seen, certainly in the United States, and I know in Europe, in my discussions, we've seen tremendous advancements by the private sector. And one of the things I've said many times over is this is a problem. The space debris problem is a problem that is changing at speed. And when you have to move very quickly, governments tend not to move quickly. A key tool in your toolkit is the private sector, and again, we're seeing lots of developments in the private sector to be able to help with this. We just need to put more emphasis on this as part of the overall slate of investments in the space economy.
0: Absolutely, the problem is going to be the problem is going to be even more important for more people. In 2019, we had some 800 functional satellites in lower orbits. Now we have more than 4,000, and it's going to triple <laughs> in the next five years. So, it's going to be very busy, very crowded. Thanks for mentioning this workshop. But indeed, following this workshop two years ago, we actually launched a large project with academia around the world. Right now, we're in the second phase. It's on the nice. economics of space sustainability. We have 18 teams from the likes of the University of Tokyo, of Seoul, of Polytechnique in France, even South Africa. Quite a number of different teams of economists, engineers that are all answering the same research questions in terms of what would be the potential cost of space debris, what is the value of the space infrastructure, and what would be the cost and benefits of different policy actions to actually remedy the problem. Excellent. So we have three different research questions, and we're very excited because now we're getting some very bright minds, I would say, tackling these issues with the space industry involved in some of the projects, with space agencies, and. The objective for us is not only to boost research in this specific field, but also to come up with new evidence for policymakers, for decision makers. This is a problem that will come at a large cost. We had the results of a first study from the University of Bari where they actually valued some of the lower orbits in terms not only of the satellites in there, but also in all the derived services. And they were able to give An indication that the most valued orbits were between 500 and 700 kilometers, not surprising, Mm -hmm. with a value back in 2019 of some $181 billion. That was even before the launch of all the constellations that we're seeing now. So this is just, again, one estimate. What's very interesting is that we're seeing other teams tackle the same issue And they will come up with other assessments and other numbers. We'll see how, what they come up with.
3: No, no, but I think it's very important that we have this focus on policy action. What are the economic costs of policy action? Because I worry we're at a point where if something terrible does happen in space, there'll be a reaction. And the reaction will not be informed by data. And so we really do have to focus on this. What are the economics of policy action, A, B, C, D, and E? Because... At that point, someone will say, we have to do something, and what they are going to do will likely harm the space industry if we're not careful. So data-informed regulation is really important as we think about this problem.
0: And we're not doing this work in isolation, obviously. We have some 11 space agencies that we work with as part of the OECD Space Forum, including NASA. We've seen some of the regulations actually start to change. The FCC with this five year deorbit rule, which right. just was last week to a, a workshop organized at CNES, at the French Space Agency, in terms of actually discussing with colleagues and seeing that in Europe too, this five year rule might actually be taken on. Okay. So instead of the 25 year deorbit rules, but with lots of open questions still, we have so many microsatellites that are being launched yes. without propulsion, meaning that they have to rely on atmospheric drag to actually be able to decay and disappear. We still have lots and lots of open questions there.
3: No, and I think there are probably some technological solutions. When I talk about this problem, I like to point to the fact that the easiest and cheapest solution is not creating new debris when you go up. And there are some technologies that can be beacons. They can be some of the propulsion developments. These are going to be opportunities to take another part of this problem and deal with it, but we do have to move quickly in every case. We don't want policy and regulation to move in an uninformed way. When I talk about this problem, I often hear people say, we just need regulation. And my question is, what are you going to do? You know, you may say that, but it's, uh, it's not the natural answer unless you actually understand the consequences.
0: Last, Kevin, in addition, most of the rules, the regulations that I'm talking about here, most of the time, they're voluntary. (laughs) In terms of there are no concrete obligation on operators to actually follow some of these guidelines. It's very different when you have a national space law, like in the U.S. and other places, Sure. thank God, where operators have to abide. But it's very difficult to actually check that they abide. (laughs) So we need to make the case that it's actually good and useful for everyone to follow some basic technical solutions to avoid big problems for everybody. So indeed, regulations are very useful, but we need to make the case that it's actually very good for everyone to actually abide to basic you know rules of the road. we're talking a lot about space traffic management we're not there yet, but eventually this is going to be also a very nice topic to deal with in the next decade.:
3: I think this is another area the geopolitical complexities on the ground are going to slow down any already slow processes of international governance and I think too the private sector will have some ideas about the practical rules of behavior in space, which we're just like we have when you and I are driving on the road in, in a country that we don't need the government to be involved in, whether you turn left or I turn left or whatever. I think there's a big business opportunity and the private sector can move quicker in this case than governments, both in terms of not creating new debris, but also in mitigating through a variety of means the debris that we have up there.
0: Absolutely. We're getting to a stage now where the technology is actually progressing very fast. We're going to move beyond demonstrations demonstration soon, I'm
3: sure. Fully agree with you on this. Claire, you've been very generous with your time here today, but I did have one question for you. You're overseeing a unit that focuses on the space economy and the ocean economy. And I'm just wondering, are there parallels that you see as you look at those different economies?
0: Absolutely. You see, I deal with two extreme environments. But but that are both all the way up
3: and all the way down.
0: Absolutely, but they are both source of incredible innovations and incredible market opportunities. But they also share a common point in terms of they are both global commons. We talked about the role of the private sector, but here we're talking also about the fact that these environments, space and ocean, they need to stay sustainable. Sure. And that links again back to this issue of space debris for space. And for ocean, obviously, we need some data. For ocean, for instance, we know that more than 80% of the ocean floor is not mapped. It's not mapped yet.
3: That's incredible. So there are
0: lots, lots of efforts, but you see there are a lot of ocean exploration going on these days, not at the level of space exploration, but there are definitely a lot of common factors here between these two extreme environments.
3: Interesting. Very much. We've had a great time chatting about this topic. I suspect we'll return to many of these themes uh, during the course of the podcast. You've given us some great inputs to get started here. Let me uh, thank you very much for being our first guest on Space Economy Insights. And let me stop there.
0: Kevin, thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
2: Kevin, this was a fantastic first interview. Which are your major highlights from your conversation with Claire? What are you? take a home point.
3: Well, thank you, Emma. I thought it was a wonderful first episode, and I was delighted that Claire was able to join us for this overarching conversation about the space economy. I really wanted to have this kind of a conversation for our first episode in order to set the stage for our future conversations on the Space Economy Insights podcast. And so what we were able to achieve with Claire was, one, we had a shared a definition on the value and benefits from exploring, understanding, managing and utilizing space. There are other definitions, but they're largely centered around some of those same ideas. But we also talked a lot about the importance of communicating better about the value of space to presidents, to prime ministers, to parliamentarians, and even to the public at large. And I think that was a very important point that both of those will carry throughout the entire podcast. Now, I really anticipated we would have a good conversation about the challenges of measuring the space economy. And Claire was a pioneer in this area. Other people are doing some excellent work in this area. And they've got the interest of everyone from politicians to space agency heads to others. We know that this is still the early stage of understanding how to measure Many different aspects of the space economy at some crude level, we can measure inputs and outputs, but we still don't have an accurate measure of how large the space economy is, in particular, the changes that are taking place both in traditional verticals, but also in the brand new emerging market segments. And so that's a place where we're going to need to do a lot more work. As new market segments emerge, we'll want people to be thinking about how we can best account for them. And uh, I think those are some of the highlights. I very much appreciated Claire's focus, uh, as you might imagine, on space sustainability at the very end, in particular, the work that's underway to look at the economic costs of policy action. I've said many times before that regulation must have some sense, both technically and economically of its impacts, both good and bad. And so it sounds like the OECD has a wonderful, large effort underway to understand these economic costs in in specific terms. Last point I'll make on the overview is that uh, Claire was as optimistic as I often am to say there are lots of opportunities for innovation and market opportunities as well, commercial opportunities. We'll end this episode on the note saying there are many opportunities that we're going to explore going forward.
2: On a positive note, that's excellent. One of the questions that I had was exactly something about the challenges about measuring. What you guys were saying is that we have all this data, this projection data about the space economy, but we don't have real data because fundamentally we don't have a statistical accurate method to determine what is actually generated by the space economy and what is not. Like, for example, Uber you just uses GPS. So at the moment, we don't know if we can count it or not as a space economy. Is this is the issue?
3: Yeah, we still don't have many measures. I don't think it's a single measure that we can rely on, Lee, for understanding the breadth and the depth of the space economy. On the one hand, we do have simple measures like counting satellites, counting launches, counting things that are the inputs to the space economy. It's much harder to understand what the real value is of the benefits that come out the other end, like improved scientific awareness, economic productivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the good news is that the OECD and my former colleagues at the Department of Commerce are working with academia, with industry, with others to actually try to put more rigor on how we account for the space economy. So it's a work in progress. Let's call it that way. I think the work done so far has been good, but we need to do a lot more And I think as our conversation reflected with Claire, it's really important to have an accurate understanding of those numbers for both decision makers, people who have to invest in space, for investors themselves, and even for the public at large to understand what the value of space really is in their lives. And as you and I have talked, the public is still not fully aware of the many benefits they get from space every single day.
2: So something else that you and Claire discussed was the necessity of government funding to subsidize the private sector. And it seemed to me that it was sort of like chicken and egg argument emerging. The government says that they need injection of private capitals, but private companies say that they need government funds to get started. Who should give the money
3: first? I don't think it's an either or question. Governments, and especially in recent years, private institutions have funded the space economy. And they've done it in different ways, as Claire and I discussed. Governments have their national programs. Private finance has stepped in to nicely fund diversity, diversification, and innovation in different ways. That's changing now because of the changes in the global economic condition, because of the war in Ukraine, other things like that. And so we're seeing a change in the balance, if you will, between the two. Claire talked about the idea that governments would spend more money Governments are spending an unprecedented level of money right now in the space economy. And they're, too, another source of uncertainty in how we account for things. For example, when we talk about the economic impact of space security activities, those numbers are usually very hard to find. And so that's a place where we're either not counting or undercounting or probably miscounting in some cases. But the extent to which both the private sector and government will continue to fund space, there may be a shift in the mix between the two, but it's not an either or. I think what we've seen in recent years is that governments have worked in concert with, not directly in concert with, but they've worked in a synergistic way. And the way i have liked to describe this is we've seen governments place smaller bets on things in the market. Some of the earlier stage companies, those are in addition to the large traditional programs that we see, and again, mostly for exploration, but security as well. In parallel, they're able to, those companies are able to go out into the market and with that technical validation say, hey, government has validated that what we're doing is of interest to them. Would you make an investment in my company? And so there's this synergy we have to pay careful attention to. I think both will continue to spend in the market. The balance, the mix may change, but uh, both are there. I also want to say one other thing about the SEMA, which is that we often think about the money aspects of this and those are very important, but we should also recognize that There are a number of non-monetary things that can be done by the governments in order to encourage commercialization and the linkage between commercial companies and, if you will, customers on the government side.
2: But there was a point uh, on which you and Claire were not in fully agreement or maybe in slightly disagreement. Am I wrong?
3: I think only the extent to which governments alone would be the main funders of space activities in the coming years. I don't think we've seen a drop off in private investment in space, but I don't think that's gone, certainly hasn't gone to a very low level. There will continue to be good opportunities to invest in space. We are still seeing private investments in space, mostly in the earlier stages or in companies already invested in. So it has not dropped. And so the question is, again, what the mix is going to be. So I think it was a slight disagreement, not not a big one by any means.
2: (laughs) Kevin, Claire mentioned the issue of controlling the hype. What do you think about this? How do we do that?
3: So I think that's what this entire discussion was all about. I want to distinguish between excitement about the space economy because we need the inspired minds of entrepreneurs and investors and other people government program managers who are envisioning the exciting things that can be done. One of the exciting things that that I'm noticing recently is that we're starting to see more excitement on the part of people that have not been traditionally involved in space activities. And I think that's going to be responsible for the next wave of innovation. And so distinguish between genuine excitement, interest in moving the space economy forward across a wide range of of market segments, and hype, which says that uh, if you invest in this now, we'll do all sorts of things in a very short period of time. That said, in, in the old days in space, you used to say, we had an exciting idea, it might be here in 10 years. These days, it might be here in two years, it might be here in two months. And so I do think there's a speed associated with developments in the space economy, not every one of them, but with many of them that we should pay attention to. And I think that's where the distinction lies between excitement and hype.
2: That's also to be said that large technical revolutions occur on decades. So we are getting more and more impatient, aren't we? <laughs> we want to see things happening tomorrow, but maybe we need 50 years to develop such huge change in our
3: economy in a Re- sort of way. Remember, in this case, we have the example, I think the clearest example of this is on the lunar economy. We know that there are 100 missions planned to the moon in the next decade. And so I don't know if the, if a decade is long enough or short enough for you (laughs) in terms of the revolution, but you know, you have a hundred missions going, let's assume for a minute that 10% of them don't succeed or 10% of them don't go for whatever reason, we're still going to have a lot of activity on the moon that will really increase dramatically our understanding and our activity on the moon. And so that's just one example. During the rest of this podcast series, we're going to talk to other people who are exploring other market verticals, which might go just as fast for other reasons, things like space manufacturing and robotics, things like space medicine. I think we tend to lump everything together as part of the space economy for just organizational reasons. Different segments will move faster just as we saw in the traditional market segments. Remote sensing, which got off to a slow start, is now the fastest, I believe, the fastest growing segment in the space economy of the traditional players. We're going to see things move at different rates. Not everything will succeed, but many of them will and then probably take place at a lot faster rate than we all expect.
2: So Claire, when you asked her which was a sector that she thought was absolutely important, she replied the debris sector. Can I ask you the same question?
3: Space sustainability, obviously, is something that I spent a lot of time on while I was at so I spent a lot of time on it since the day I left the government. And it's a critically important sector to pay attention to. As we discussed with Claire, space debris in particular threatens the lives of astronauts in space. It threatens the investments that we all collectively have made in space. And it certainly threatens the future of the space economy as we have discussed it and will continue to, to discuss it here. And so I think that's really important. I think we need to think about the economics of space sustainability much more and how we think about this as as a business enterprise, a different market segment. I've spoken for many years about the fact that there is our commercial ecosystems moving very quickly that can help with this problem. If governments are able to leverage commercial tools effectively, think about it this way, we're going to need to leverage analytics, we're going to need to leverage visualization tools, we're going to need to leverage cloud computing And when you have such a fast changing problem like space debris, you really have to use the tools in your toolkit that can move the fastest. And in this case, not surprisingly, it's the private sector. I'll make one last point on this is that some people think mistakenly that if we're able to mitigate the space debris problem, there's visions of both improving space situational awareness as a pathway ultimately to debris removal. But there are people that think that once we get to that point, we'll have, quote, solved the problem. I think that's exactly wrong. I think what we're really looking at is a place where when we can mitigate the space debris problem, partly by not creating new debris before it it leaves the earth, before spacecraft leave the earth, that you're actually going to open up a whole new wave of services in space that will serve as the foundation of the future space economy. So it's critically important that we get this piece right. But we also need to be thinking about it, not just in technical terms, but also in economic and business terms.
2: And she mentioned a study in this direction. She mentioned a large study looking at the economics of policy action, correct?
3: Yes, I was really happy to hear about the study that she cited. Uh, Maybe there's a way we can reference it further in the materials associated with the podcast. She talked about 18 teams of researchers from around the world are looking at the economic aspects of policy and when I've spoken about regulation before, one of the things that I ask people to pay careful attention to is the economics, the economic impact. What both intended and unintended effects can you create? And the best way to do that is to use rigorous analysis of both technical data, past history, new technologies and how they can have a regulatory impact that we're trying to get while having the least amount of cost both for industry and governments that are pursuing these brand new capabilities in space. So I'll be excited to see what the results of that study are.
2: Absolutely, and Kevin, it was fantastic to hear you and Claire discussing about these topics. This was a brilliant first episode. What's next? We're
3: really excited about this episode as a pathway to the next ones that we're planning. We're talking to decision-makers from around the world about their views on the space economy in particular, what are some of the more exciting new market segments, or what are the fast-breaking developments in some of the older market segments? How will different countries, how will different groups actually benefit from space in a more important way than they have historically? How will they recognize those values that we have for space on society and in our economy? Very much looking forward to the next episodes and some exciting things to come.
2: Fantastic. Kevin, thank you very much. And well, to the next time. <laughs> Thank you.
3: Thanks, everybody.
1: That was our pilot episode of the Space Economy Insights podcast with Kevin O'Connell and Dr. Emma Gatti. We'd like to thank you for your time and your interest. This podcast is produced by spacewatch.global. If you want to help us, leave us a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. Our host team is looking forward to the next guest. And so we say. Goodbye, Arrivederci and auf Wiedersehen. Till next one.